Last week, we saw that David had intended to build a temple for God in an expression of an appreciation for all that God had done and in recognition of the uniqueness and greatness of the true and living God. However, though Nathan immediately thought that was a fantastic idea, God revealed that that wasn't what God desired for David at all. And so Nathan was charged with the responsibility of going and tell David that David was not, in fact, to build a temple, but rather God was going to build a house for David. So this morning we want to look at David's response. How is David going to respond? Now, this may seem ludicrous, but one must ask, is he going to be offended because he's not allowed to build God a temple? Is he going to take it personally? We saw in 1 Chronicles that one of the reasons that David was not allowed to build a temple was because he was a man of war. And so, is he going to be offended? Is he going to have his nose up in the air and say, well, I'm not going to have anything to do with God if God isn't going to accept this gift that I so graciously want to provide him? No, that's not his response. Is he angry with Nathan? Is he upset because Nathan changes his mind? Immediately he says, go for it, it's a great idea, and then turns around and tells David, no, uh, this is not what God wants at all. So does he shoot the messenger, as it were? Is he upset with Nathan? And the answer is no, no. David does not allow his disappointment to distort his reaction to the incredible gracious and incredible promise that God had made to David. And I say that because we need to be very careful that sometimes God does not respond in the way in which we expect him to respond. God's word does not teach us what we had hoped that it would say. And if we're not careful in our obstinacy, in our <clears throat> rebelliousness, we close our ears to what God has to say to us. And as a result, we'd miss out on many, many blessings and fail to recognize the graciousness and goodness of God and all that he's doing for us. Well, David does not close his ears. In fact, just the opposite, he's very attentive to what God has said to David. And David understands that God is making some incredible, incredible promises to David. So David responds to God with a prayer, a prayer, a prayer of praise and a prayer of petition. David responds with a bold prayer, a prayer that is occasioned by God's promise. The key verse is 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 27. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. David finds courage. David finds strength. David is motivated to offer a prayer to God because of God's promised blessing to David. And we too should be emboldened to pray as a result of God's promises. So this morning our theme is that David responds to God's promises regarding the continuance of David's kingdom with prayer, with prayer. And we want to focus on the contents of this prayer. What does the prayer contain? Well, it consists of two parts. The first is praise. 
First and foremost, David's prayer contains a series of praises, a number of praises. First, David praises God because of all that God had done for David. As David reflects upon his life, it is amazing how far David had come. Verse 18, then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house? Now these words, that you have brought me thus far. That you have brought me this far. David had gone from being a simple shepherd boy to now being king over all Israel. And God points that out to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8. It says, now therefore, thus you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. That wasn't lost on David. He realized the goodness of God in bringing him from a place of being a shepherd, a nobody, if you will, to now being king over all Israel. And David marvels at how such an amazing thing would take place. That a nobody in Israel, from a family that's a nobody in Israel, would become king over all Israel. Look at verse 18, the middle of the verse. It says, who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? Why me? Why me? And then David acknowledges that it was the Lord, not David, who was responsible for David's successes that brought David to where he was that day. For if you look at verse 18, it says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house? That you, that you, and we should put that in bold letters. We should put that in, you know, a 24-point font. You have brought me thus far. He acknowledges God's leading and direction and provision all along the way. For furthermore, God had been with David every step of the way. If you look at verse 9, it says, And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. There was never a time that God left David on his own. But God was that friend who sticketh closer than a brother. God was that constant help and strength to David. And it says to David, I have cut off all your enemies before you. Just looking at one aspect of God's provision and one aspect of God's protection, you could look at a host of ways in which God was at with David and blessed David. But he focuses on the fact that God had cut off David's enemies. And if we reflect just for a moment, you know, it starts with that incredible story of David and Goliath. How David is able to conquer this huge giant whom all Israel is afraid of. And David goes out with nothing but a sling and a stone and trust in Almighty God. God had spared David's life and David's many wars against the Philistines. Battle after battle. And yet, David was protected. God had saved David from even Saul, the former king. How relentlessly Saul persecuted David. And we saw week after week, time after time, circumstance after circumstance, in which it appears that 
Saul almost has David this time. He has him trapped. And time and time again, God delivers David from Saul. And then most recently, we saw that God delivered David from the insurrections that took place after David became king, from Abner and the army and the host of individuals that again wanted to see David dethroned, wanted to see David killed. But God had been with David and saw him through all that turmoil, all that misery, all that heartache, and all that danger. And David does not fail to give credit to God. He acknowledges that God is the one who had brought him thus far. David praises God for what God is going to do for David in the future. What God has done in the past is almost nothing in comparison to what God is going to do for David in the future. For it says in verse 19, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. This was a small thing. What a unique perspective. What a unique perspective. You know, for us, just imagine our life being spared time and time again. And, you know, we have a tendency to when everything is just going wrong and we see God's incredible hand of mercy and grace to recognize, wow, God is good. You know, you're, you're driving in your, your car and you're going down the highway and somebody pulls out right in front of you and somehow you're able to avoid it and your heart's beating and racing and you, and you stop and you say, thank you, Lord. Thank you. Your protection, your goodness. And yet we fail to see that same protection every single day as we drive down the highway with nothing untoward happening. Nobody pulling out in front of us, nothing else. But it's still God's provision for us. It's God's grace. God's grace. And so many of us strive to get ahead. We want power. We want authority. We want wealth. We want whatever. And God provided it for David. He made him prince over Israel. This shepherd boy rises to a place that is unfathomable, the highest position in the nation. First verse of this chapter, David is dwelling in the house of cedar. Richly blessed. And David says, that's a small thing in your eyes. That's a small thing. That's not what's really important in life. That's not the incredible grace that you have shown. But rather in verse 19, it says, this is a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. For a great while to come. What God was going to do was far greater than even making David a king. He was going to give David a kingdom that would be everlasting. Generation after generation would come from David. God is going to bless the future generations. Tonight, we are going to look at a psalm that was written by David in offering a prayer for Solomon. Offering a prayer that God would use Solomon, and we're going to be taking that apart verse by verse, looking at the particular requests and petitions that David makes on behalf of his son to be used of God. I wonder, do we delight in seeing our children used of God? Are we praying for our children that God would use them and that they'd be a blessing for 
generations and peoples to come. What do we want from our children? It thrilled David's heart to know that this servant's house would continue for a longer time. But even greater still was that what God was doing was going to be a blessing not just to himself and not just to his nation Israel as his brothers and sisters by the flesh, but what God is going to be doing for all mankind. For notice verse 19. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And this is instruction for mankind. All are going to hear about this. All are going to learn from it, even as we are learning from this passage today, thousands of years later. We are to realize that we ourselves are participating in the benefits of the promise that God made to David. You know, the ultimate one that is going to come from David's loins, the ultimate one who's the fulfillment of this promise is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we looked at that last week. Look at that last week. Jesus is going to be sitting on this throne for ever and ever. He is the true king of kings. And we, who have placed our faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ, are partakers of this promise. What God is doing, what God is accomplishing, what God is unfolding, what God is working, and what God is still working, is all in keeping with this promise. And so it's for all mankind. And David praises God for blessing David despite God's continued unworthiness. Verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. You know your servant. And there are many ways in which we could understand that simple statement. There are, there are many nuances to the fact that God knows his servant David. But uh, what we want to focus on is, first of all, we have seen that David went from being a lowly shepherd to king over all Israel. And one might think that in the process, David had proven himself worthy of future blessing. That in this preparatory work, and it was a preparatory work, but in this preparatory work, David comes to a place of spiritual maturity and trust in the Lord that, that now he deserves to be this, this king that is going to be a blessing to not only his nation, but the nations round about him, and ultimately to the world. After all, David had fought the great Goliath. David had emphasized and manifested great restraint in killing Saul, but instead followed the word of God. And David said, 
Who am I to stretch forth my hand against the Lord's anointed? He wouldn't give in to that temptation. Even though people were saying, God has delivered Saul into your hand. Here's the occasion for you to become king. But David resisted. He didn't do that. And not only did he resist not taking Saul's life, but he resisted taking Abner's life, and he resisted taking the lives of those that rose up and insurrection against God. And now most recently, this, this David wants to build a temple for God. Now, that's not what God wanted, but certainly that's praiseworthy. Certainly that's a good thing. The motivation, the desire to see God exalted and lifted up and have a place of worship where people are going to come and acknowledge him as the true and living God. Doesn't David finally deserve? Isn't this his reward? Isn't this God saying to David, David, I am so proud of you. David, I so appreciate you that I am going to reward you with this kingdom that is going to be lasting forever. And the Christ is going to come from your loins. David had enough spiritual insight and understanding to know that wasn't the case. No. This wasn't a reward for David's faithfulness. Look at verse 20. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. David knew that he was undeserving. And David knew that God knew that David was undeserving. I don't have a text and verse for this, but I don't think David had a clue as to how undeserving he really was. Just as often we talk about God's grace and God's goodness to us and how undeserved it is that we are saved. Or somebody says to us, how are you doing? And we'll say, well, better than we deserve. But many times, we don't understand the depths of that. I don't believe David understood the depths of how undeserving he was. For God knows, David. We don't know everything about David. But we do know that after this, after this, not prior to, after this, David commits adultery with Bathsheba. David arranges for the death of her husband. So he is murdered. David, in pride, is going to number the people of Israel and deserve the wrath of God. Now, David doesn't know all that. That's all future to David. But God knows that. God isn't surprised. And God isn't disappointed as though, man, I I put such hope and trust in this guy, and look where he ends up. Man, did I misjudge him. Boy, I wish I had that call to do over. 
No. No. God knew David. And God chose to use David. And God chose to make him king. And God chose never to take that kingdom away from David, despite all that David did. And David marvels. David marvels at the grace of God. And so should we. And so should we. We should marvel that God has saved us, though God knows us. And we should marvel that God chooses to use us, though God knows us. And if we fail to understand that great truth, we will begin to take God's blessings for granted. We will think that we deserve this position. We deserve this title. We deserve to be used in this way. But none of us do. I don't deserve to be a pastor. I don't deserve that privilege. It's God's grace. He's had to forgive a lot of things. He's had to overlook a lot of failures. And for order that to come to pass. If we don't realize how undeserving we are, we fail to praise in the way that we should. This praise is real because David gets it. But on the spectrum of things, we can get so out of whack that not only do we think that we deserve certain things, but we become disgruntled when we don't get certain things. As though God owed it to us. Not only are we deserving, but we're more than deserving. God, look at how faithful I've been. And look what you've done. Why did this come into my life? Don't you know I've been serving you for all these years? Don't you know that I've been tithing regularly and now I have these financial problems? God, why me? I don't deserve this. God can never be beholding to us. There's not a person here who can say that I've gotten less than I've deserved. We all must say God has treated us graciously and given us far more than what we ever deserve. So David then praises God for God's decision to bless David. That's the natural outcome. God has done all this because God said that he would. Verse 21, because of your promise. Because of your promise. That's why God is doing all this. God made a promise. God made a promise to Adam and Eve. God made a promise to Abraham. God made a promise to David. When David was anointed by Samuel to become king, and then all these dreadful things happened. God made a decision. God is faithful to himself. God will keep his word even when we are unfaithful to God. 
All this will come to pass because of God's promise. God has blessed David simply because God desired to. Verse 21, because of your promise and according to your own heart. It isn't David's heart. Now, remember, when David is chosen, God says to Samuel that David is a man after God's own heart, but we certainly see how fickle that heart is. God's heart is constant. God's heart is not fickle. God is faithful. God is true. God is with us all the time. And David says, according to your own heart, God has a plan. God has a purpose. And God is the author of that plan. He is the author. And he is the one who accomplishes our salvation. He chose us. Not according to our will, but according to his, according to the book of Romans. And God has and is accomplishing all of this. Verse 21, you have brought about all this greatness. You have brought it about. God has not only has a plan, God is working that plan. God is working that plan. When in the book of Acts, we have Stephen rehearsing God's activity in the nation of Israel when he is standing ready to be martyred and crucified. And in Acts chapter 13, excuse me, I have the wrong occasion. But this is what was said. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw no corruption. When he had served the purpose of God, the reason for which God had redeemed him, the reason for which God had made him king, he fulfilled God's purpose. We all, we, I think most of us know the verses. By grace are you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. Not of works, lest they men should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God before hath ordained that we should walk in them. God has not saved us because of our good works, but God has saved us to perform good works. He saved us to accomplish his purpose, his will. And God has blessed us in making God's will and himself known to us. Look at the end of verse 21. Because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness and now these simple words to make your servant know it. To make your servant know it. David is rejoicing that not only has God promised to do these things, but God has revealed it. God made it known. God let David see it. It wasn't necessary for David to understand that Christ would come from his lineage. It wasn't necessary that David understand that, that Solomon was going to be sitting on the throne after him, but in the grace and goodness of God, he revealed it. He showed it to him. But there were many things that it was absolutely necessary for David to understand and for God to reveal it. And God to show it to him. And he does. 
We need to be a thankful people for all that God reveals to us in his word. In, in Matthew, in chapter 16, Jesus is passing through the areas of Caesarea. And he asks his disciples this question. Whom do people say that I am? And they said, some say that I am John the Baptist, some Elijah, another Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said unto them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon and Barjona. For flesh and blood is not revealed that unto you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter, you're blessed. Because God has revealed to you that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then, strikingly, in that same passage, in verse 17, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Blessed art thou, Simon by Jonah, for flesh and blood is not revealed that unto you, my Father which is in heaven. And then in verse 20, Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Blessed are you, Simon by Jonah, for God has revealed that unto you. Now don't you tell anybody else. Now later, of course, we're going to have the Great Commission in He's going to say, go into all the world, but at that moment, don't tell anybody else. Keep quiet. It's not time for them to know it. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, chooses who to reveal the truth to. Matthew 13.10, the disciples came and said to him, that's Jesus, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Or to the one who has more will be given, and he will have an abundance, but... From the one who has not, even that which he has will, not, will be taken away. And then the end of that passage, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. David says, you have revealed this to me. You have revealed this to me. You realize how blessed you are to have God reveal to you the gospel? If you grew up in a Christian home, how blessed you are from the time that you were able to be nursed from your mother's breast. You heard the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. And you realize how many people do not have that news? Do you realize how blessed you are to come to church and to hear the Word of God taught in Sunday school, to hear the Word of God preached freely when there are so many places around the world where people cannot even gather today to worship the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Is it any wonder that praise just flows from David's lips for all that God has revealed to him? Brothers and sisters, we should be praising God not simply because we have been exposed to these things, but we have believed these things. We have embraced these things. We not only heard about a Savior, we put our trust in a Savior by the grace of God. By the grace of God. Oh, how our hearts should be stirred with praise. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. And it goes back to that whole thing of undeservedness again. Why me? Why me? David praises God for his uniqueness. God is great due to his uniqueness. There is no God that can be compared to the true and living God, verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you. There's none like you. You are incomparable. You are without a comparison. You are unique. Not only is God unique, but there is, in fact, no other God who is real. Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and now this, and there is no God besides you. Not only is there no one like you, in reality there is no other God. All other gods are idols. All other gods are myths. All other gods are the creation of mankind. Not the creator of mankind. You and you alone are the true God. And there is no God who makes promises like the Lord does. Verse 22, end of verse, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Referring to these promises, referring to this revelation, going back to verse 21, you have revealed it, you have made it known. There is no God. Like that. And then David praises God for the uniqueness of God's people. Their uniqueness is due solely to the fact that they belong to God. Verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. The one nation that God has sent to redeem his people. And now we know, again, in the book of Romans that when it's talking about Israel, it's talking about the people of God, the people of promise, Romans says. And that promise is to those who are believers in God. Not ethnic, physical Israel, but the heirs of the promise who are the true spiritual people, the people of God. What makes... Israel unique is the redemption that they experience. And that is what makes us unique. The redemption that we have experienced. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, it says of those that are around the throne giving praise to God, and they sang a new song saying, Thou art worthy to take this book and to open the seals thereof, for thou was slain and has redeemed 
us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. We've been redeemed. And God, in making the people belong to himself, got praise for what he had done for his people, verse 23. And who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth that God redeemed to be his people, making himself a name and doing from them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you'd redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and gods. And so they rejoiced and they sang the song of Moses that reiterated God's goodness to them and leading them out of Egypt and freeing them from bondage and leading them into a new and great and victorious land. God had done such great things for them. Again, the book of Revelation 5.9, and they sang a new song. Not the song of Moses, a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain. Thou wast slain. It's amazing for what God provided for Israel when they led them out of Egypt with the Passover lamb. But God has given us a salvation through the true Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who was slain and by whom we have been redeemed by his blood. Redeemed by his blood. Should we not be a people praising God? I'm quickly running out of time. So I'm going to look at these final petitions extremely quickly. First, if you notice in verse 25, it says, And now, O Lord God, the end now speaks of a transition. We're going from praise to petition. The first is David prays that God's promise will be completely fulfilled, bringing honor and glory to God. Verse 25. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. I'll save application for the end. Number B, David petitions the Lord with great confidence because he's praying in the will of God. Verse 27, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I build you a house. David was thankful that God had revealed it. Now he says this, Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. I have courage to come before you and to ask this incredible thing because you revealed to me that's your will. You have told me that's what you want. And so now I'm coming to ask for it to be fulfilled. We can have great confidence as we come to the Lord in prayer because we know that's God's will for us that we pray to him. Hebrews 4.16, let us then come with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. But that's what God has promised us. He's promised us grace. He's promised us mercy. And so we have boldness. We can come with confidence before God because he said, that's what we'll get. He said, that's what I'll do. I will show you grace. I will show you mercy. 
We can come and we confess our sins and we know that we will receive forgiveness. We know that we will get grace. We know that we will receive mercy because he's promised it to us. And because he promised it to us, we can go and ask for it. With confidence that he will do it. God's petitions, David petitions God with boldness, believing that God's promises are true, verse 28. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. God's word is true. True. God is not a God that he should lie. We can have confidence that God will keep his word. God's promises should not make us apathetic in prayer. If God's words are true and if God's promises are unfailing, we might ask the question, well, then why do we pray? Why, why do we bother? God is going to do this. God is going to accomplish his purpose. Why doesn't that create apathy and indifference in our hearts? Well, I would submit to you a poor illustration, but somewhat in keeping. It's like when a parent tells a child they're going to get them a new video game. A child doesn't usually just sit back and say, well, thanks. And sits idly by waiting for that promise to be fulfilled. But the child says, can you order it now? Can we go to the store now? In anticipation of that promise, they, they want their parents to act. They're longing for it. They desire it. They want it. The promises of God are intended to to stir our hearts. To help us understand what it is that we should long for, what we should desire, what we should pray for. Our prayers ought to be founded on the promises of God. For they are the best gifts. They're the most appropriate things. You know, as you look through this this. prayer of praise and petition, one thing is striking in its absence, and that is that David doesn't pray that he'd be able to build God a temple. He knows that's not what God wants, but that's been removed far from his mind by now. But David realizes there's something a whole lot better going on here, and it occupies his heart and his mind. As our hearts are stirred with the promises of God, we long for those promises, we desire those promises, and our hearts are strangely warmed to want those promises. For they are what is best for us. That's God's goodness. Conclusion. God has made promises to us. And we're to praise God for those promises are undeserved. We take confidence in God's promises that they are going to be fulfilled because they are his purpose. He initiated them. He made them. And he will remain faithful to himself even when we remain unfaithful to him.
Never forget David in his sin after these promises are made, and yet God remains faithful. I'm not preaching licentiousness this morning, but I am telling you that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be with him forever. No matter what. Because our God is a gracious God. Our God saves us on the basis of his purpose and his will. Now that's a very complex issue, and God will work and change your heart, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm just telling you that God's promises are irrevocable. We should see this morning how we are partaking in this very promise. This blessing that David is experiencing, we are experiencing because of Christ, the fulfillment of this promise. How unique our God is, and how unique we as his people are. And we need to understand that. Our uniqueness is not contrived. Our uniqueness is not by what we wear. Our uniqueness is not by the car that we drive. Our uniqueness is not the length of our hair. Our uniqueness is our relationship to Jesus Christ. And in that relationship, what really sets us apart is, first of all, the uniqueness in our praise. That we are a thankful people. We acknowledge God's goodness to us. And we rejoice in all that he is doing. That will separate us so far from the world who are grumblers and who are complainers and do not get what they deserve or what makes us unique is that we never raise our fist towards God and say, God, why did you not give me what we deserve? But we humbly bow our head and thank God for giving us what we don't deserve, which is a Christless eternity. But he has blessed us. He has saved us. He's brought us as far as we are. And he will take us all the way. Let us pray. Almighty God, I thank you for your mercy and your grace. I thank you for your wonderful promise. And your promises to us. Exceedingly great and precious promises, according to the book of 2 Peter. Promises of hope of salvation. Of eternity with you. Of forgiveness of sins. And peace with God. Help us to be a praying people. Praying giving you praise, praying, trusting in your promises. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.